Welcome to episode 43 of The People on K-Chun, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Gina Osterlo and Samira Yamin. Gina Osterlo is a Los Angeles artist who works with elements of performance and drawing and photography. She's recently shown at Miss Barber's, Francois Gebeli, and Armory Center for the Arts in Los Angeles, among many others. She is in an upcoming group exhibition at Arizona State University Museum entitled Energy Charge, Anna Mendieta and Her Influences. So in my work, there might be um, edges of cutout figures, or there might be edges of silhouettes, or there might be edges or seams of a constructed room that I've created. For me, it's really important that the viewer can see those edges because it, it signifies uh, a familiar space. In that familiarity, there's there's still something that is uh, becoming un- unraveled, perhaps. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not fixed. Samira Yamin is an artist and a native Angelina who was recently shown at the Craft and Folk Art Museum and the Santa Monica Museum of Art here in Los Angeles. Her work explores the issues of representation through photography. I started collecting images right after 9-11. I didn't really know why, I just knew that it was the first time I was really seeing um, images as, a, as an adult of people that looked like me in the newspaper, except that um, they were always either dead or dying. And that was not my experience of you know that part of the world. And so I developed a mistrust, a distrust of of images, like really quickly at a very formative moment in my life. It was really occurring to me to to think about images on this other level. Coming up later, we'll hear a reading by Harold Abramowitz from his new book, Blindspot, available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. And we'll close out this episode with music by Los Angeles artist Geneva Skeen from her forthcoming album, Dark Speech, which you can check out on Dragon's Eye Recordings at dragonseyerecordings.com. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. And you can listen to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. You can also find us on iTunes if you search for The People Radio. And when you're there, do please take the time to rate and review us. That would really help us out. And you can also find us at insertblancpress.net and just look for the people at the top of the page. Gina Osterlo and Samira Yamin, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Gina, the word or the term mimesis, I feel like, comes up a lot when people write and talk about your work. And when you write and talk about your work, could you give us some sort of idea of like what what that term means in relationship to your practice? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, mimesis in a very simple way, just means uh, to copy. And this this act of copying, I find so fascinating that it's the basic building block of language, whether it's spoken language, uh, body language. So in a way, the act of copying is the, the root of one's identity. And for example, um, a baby learning to speak, mama, dad, dad, but yet in that copy, there's this persistence of an individual tone in the voice. There's the individual's presence. There's agency. And in my work, in, in my photographs, um, at, at first I was interested in military camouflage. So uh, the pattern of camouflage 
and how it can splinter or um, uh, disrupt the visual plane. Um, but quite early, I became frustrated with uh, military camouflage, realizing how familiar it was to the viewer and how, um, I guess, expected or, or full that metaphor of military camouflage was. Um, thinking of, uh, so I was trying to figure out non-literal ways to use camouflage in my photograph. So maybe uh, the figure's body is copying the color of a room, or maybe the head of the body is copying the shape and color of the void. Uh, so for, for me, the the yet the mimesis is um, at once uh, violent. It, it can rupture uh, the this cohesive visual plane. Yet it's also uh, so intimate. You know, um, the act of copying, tracing, outlining a figure or even clicking the, the, the camera shutter it is so intimate. Um, and I'm glad you, you asked that question, Ben, um, because with mimesis, I, it's, it's, it's probably the uh, entry point when I look at Samira's photographs and I find, uh, Samira, your use of pattern, your... Um, I think maybe with your work, it's not always mimesis, but it's when I when I look at the Islamic sac sacred geometry patterns that you cut into, that you like when you, when you're cutting into, let's say, of course, this is a very well known work of yours. <laughs> when you're cutting into the face of Osama bin Laden on the front cover of Time magazine, mm -hmm. in that pattern making, there's repetition. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'd call it mimesis in your work, but there's definitely this disruption of the original image. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that. Yeah. I would it be fair to say that mimesis is a form of representation? Yes. So representation being a really broad thing um, that happens in various mediums or media, um, or ways of being, um, speech itself, um, like you're saying, is a form of representation of thought, maybe, Absolutely. Um, or experience. So in if we're to take that, that those the patterns mm -hmm. are a representation of the universe as a place of structure. So, um, and most religious philosophies have some sort of symbolic pattern-based representation because ultimately religion is a way of organizing the world that we experience it through chaos um, we experience the world as this kind of unknown chaotic place um, but religion aims to to show um, where that that's actually a, a place of structure um, and that it is knowable that it's understandable in some sense and it um, mm -hmm. So um, in, my, in my work, I use the patterns as a metaphor, in a sense, for the magazine as well, which takes a week's worth of news and puts it into some structured way that we can understand it um, in the form of narrative. So 
in many ways, the face of Osama bin Laden is not his own face. It's, it's a representation of a narrative. Um, right. And so, and it's a part of a structured narrative um, that's constructed in a way that we can un- make sense of this, like, otherwise chaotic-seeming world. Your patterns are, in a way, uh, abstractions. Mm-hmm. See, that's actually interesting. You think so? Well, this is what I find so fascinating about um, these types of subjects um, Mm. is that, yes, we consider it an abstraction because it's not representational in the form of it doesn't represent a figure, right? So like in the arts, that's that's kind of how that language is used. Um, Philosophically, it's it's supposed to be a direct representation of the structure that exists in the world. And what's really incredible is that in physics, those patterns have very recently, like within the last 10 years, there are aspects of the way that those patterns are constructed that have been demonstrated in physics, um, actually very visually, almost directly, in ways that the original designers of those patterns could not have known because the technology just didn't exist to see on that level. Right. So they were intuiting something. Something was being intuited, or it's not even an intuitive thing necessarily. It's based on, you know, millennia worth of philosophizing about the universe and then looking at the world and actually learning things from it in a way that then is passed down and accumulated and results in these patterns or results in knowledge of, like, what, you know, different medicinal medicinal herbs you know exist around us that then later a thousand years later you know western sieve comes around and like you know we now we have like beakers and eyedroppers and cameras and all sorts of like random things that then we kind of go through the whole process and we decide that oh my god look this thing like cures depression or <laughs> you know but and it's like people have both known ways it of categorizing or pointing specifically to things that happen in the world, right? Yeah, that there are ways of knowing, right? Representation is an expression of some sort of knowing of something. Right. So it's a copy. It's a stand in for knowing X, Y and Z. Yeah, it's a it's like an expression of of a mimicry of knowledge, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Of what's no, what's in the world, of an experience of something, either a visual experience or a lived experience or like an emotional experience, whatever. Um, but you know. would say that the patterns that you're carving into the photos are, you're saying that they are representational, not abstract. That's what it was. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah, Absolutely. that there's, there is um, a very direct representational quality of Absolutely. those patterns and but they're not representing a thing that's visible in to the eye they're representing it's a direct representation of a different thing that's knowable in other ways right um and so that's what i think is the um the crux of of the work is really yes. colliding and combining w- modes of representation um, it's totally colliding it's it's yeah it's a, it's a very clear juxtaposition because the photograph we were talking earlier yeah um insists upon a fixed singular identity. Mm-hmm. So let's say if, um, especially with portraiture, right? If th- there has to be a recognizable figure for the viewer to understand what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And it's fixed, as you're saying, in time. Like there's that kind of 
the way we talk about photography is it's like freezing time. It freezes time. Or stops it. Right. It mutes the subject. Um, it fixes it in this frame. Um, but with Islamic sacred geometry, it absolutely denies and refuses to re- to represent one's experience or knowledge of the world through a figure, a human, the representation of a human figure. Right. And so even the focal point is changed. Like Instead of having a central arriving point, such as a person in a photograph. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's a very clear, to me, there's a very clear juxtaposition in terms of the, the, the way the Islamic sacred geometries are a form of representation and the representation of a photograph, mm-hmm. where the photograph demands a singular focal point. It's, it's a lens. It's a lens-based right. medium. Right. It also, in portraiture, it demands for the viewer to arrive somewhere, to arrive and identify a, singu- a singular figure in this frame, mm-hmm. where your patterns move the eye almost beyond the frame. Mm-hmm. There, there is no resting point. There is no singular destination. The implication of those patterns and the way that they are used functionally, um, because they are functional in the world, um, is that they they imply that edges are uh, constructed. Yes. And so that's why, um, that's where it, that's what's so revealing about it in, by combining it with photography, there is no natural edge to pattern. Oh, right. keep talking more about edges. Yeah, so this is where, um, and actually that's exactly what I was thinking about in, in your work is where the edges kind of of figures, so, or edges of, yeah, figures, I guess, would yes. be subjects, maybe, yes. um, that are camouflaged uh, Yes. in the same patterns, um, some sort of repeating pattern or some sort of texture. Maybe pattern isn't always the right word for your work, but texture of some sort, visual texture. Color. Um, or color, yeah. Um, that then the edges are very revealing. Um, versus I think in my work, I'm trying to push the edges back and to make them feel more and more um, like artifice in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like there's this... Um, you know, the idea that the camera can only see what's directly in front of it, but there's like 360 degrees around it. Right. Um, and so that's kind of, that's that's where those patterns are really um, functional for me. And actually in the world, they have a very similar function that these, you know, the architecture in which we're standing, you know, ha- is, is not a natural edge. So that the right. pattern, when it reaches the edge, it stops only because we've constructed a boundary for it. So yes. same thing in your work, but what's but yours is different because you're revealing edges. You're yes. creating edges where there better. weren't once upon a time, right? So I'm taking the edge and trying to obliterate it. You're trying to make new edges. And so I think there's yes. a kind of an interesting um, play there that you are de-emphasizing the constructed nature of photography by creating new kind of almost invisible, slightly visible discoverable edges inside the frame as opposed to at the edges of it yes um oh my goodness i the edge is uh so if it's so in my work there might be um edges of cut out 
figures mm-hmm. or there might be edges of silhouettes or there might be the um, edges or seams of a constructed room that I've created. Right. And for me, it's really important that the viewer can see those edges uh, because it it signifies uh, a familiar space. But um, in that familiarity, there's, there's still something that is... Uh, becoming un- unraveled perhaps mm-hmm. it's, it's not fixed you know, so um, I'm, I'm interested in both uh, the physical ways one might perceive let's say a room but then what is also one's personal relationship with a room <laughs> right um, I, I want to create a space of uh, inquiry and discovery and maybe even questioning of something that's very familiar. Of just the figure-ground relationship. Yes. The body and space. Yeah, so the, you know, maybe in one room, uh, the edges aren't hard-edged. They're, they're mm-hmm. all ripped. Mm-hmm. So the edges become fuzzy. Or uh, the edges of cut-out figures, um, because of pattern and color, start to blend into each other in certain areas. Um, so then there's this questioning of where, where is the boundary mm-hmm. between a body and the room? Or where is the boundary between an individual and a group? You're listening to The People on k 1630 AM. We'll return to our conversation with Gina Osterloh and Samira Yamin in a few minutes, but first, a new installment from Notes from the People. In this edition of Notes from the People, we have Harold Abramowitz reading from his new book, Blind Spot, at Skylight Books in Los Angeles on September 2nd, 2016. You can and should find and purchase a copy of Blind Spot from Civil Coping Mechanisms Press at copingmechanisms.net. It is very good, so let's give it a listen. This is Hotel 7. The deceptions of ghosts are not of ghosts or not of anything at all. It was peace that sustained the war, a matter of oppositions. And in that discontinuity, that continuity because it was reversible, he stood and watched as the other guests entered the hotel. They, the other guests, entered the hotel through the lobby, a never-ending stream. And there was home to think about as well, a thought as definite as any other, the moment he left his room. And this trouble, really troubling thoughts, when there was something at stake, some matter of honor or another, something specific to the war or to war in general at least. It was in the room that these thoughts occurred to him, provoked him, tiny thoughts, not even the thoughts he'd intended to consider. And there was a kind of absolute silence spawned by perhaps a deepening sense of victory, or rather of entitlement, and yet there was no stage, no stage specifically nor even a place for the guests to go and be entertained. Still they, the other guests, seemed to eat a lot in the garden. There was a seat in the garden. There were several seats beside him in the garden. It was a beautiful day. The sun was out and the birds were singing in the air. A home in the forest, so to speak. And all men require a home in the forest. At one time, and those were seemingly days of greater purity, men lived in the forest. There was no violation. There was no particular code of honor that had to be followed. It was simple, really. The men, the other guests, lived in the forest for a time And then they left and continued with their lives, their businesses, their personal development, and so on. 
It is in this way that the days continue. He is alone in a hotel. This is neither a break nor a vacation, not exactly. He is on assignment. He is at the hotel for a specific reason, or he is on leave for a specific reason. In either case, he is not living his usual schedule, not performing his usual tasks and duties in their usual ways nor at the usual times. In fact, he has had to call home. His vacation has lasted longer than expected, and this, this situation, his condition, the condition he finds himself in, has already caused unimaginable problems for the world, for the world at large. It has already caused a great deal of consternation and pain and suffering, and luck or ill luck or bad omens have had nothing to do with it. It is pain. There once was pain. He is lying in bed in his hotel room. It is a perfect night. He is high in the mountains. The air is sweet and the atmosphere is ideal. All his pain will be absorbed by the mountain air. The aroma, the simple smell of trees and of flowers, living flowers and of air, clean air, will help heal him of all that ails him. It is this benefit, one among many, that the hotel offers, that the hotel is, in fact, famous for. He remembers this fact. The memory of this fact comes to him suddenly. It is something that pulls at him while he drives the car, or rather, while he is driven in a car. The hotel he is to visit will be beneficial for him. Then the car breaks down. There's a problem with the car and he has to pull over to the side of the road. That is, the driver has had to pull the car over to the side of the road. The car is large, but appears to be in good condition, if a little old and not quite in the current style or fashion. There is a pen in his hand and is about to write a letter. He has just finished writing a postcard. There is a certain anticipation as the car winds its way up the mountain road, a certain sense of curiosity as the car approaches the hotel. Now let's return to our conversation with Gina Osterloh and Samira Yamin. So I'm going to try to formulate this question. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm thinking about in terms of your work, Gina, um, in terms of those edges, um, and in the the work that's more the gridded, you know, um, scenes. Right. Um, where maybe there isn't an edge and it's sort of, um, there's kind of that curve that kind of mm. goes from the wall to the ground mm-hmm. that, you know, where figure meets ground. Um, there's, there's, there's a couple of thoughts that I had about that that maybe you could um, speak to that for one thing um, in your work, it requires, a, your work generally requires a visual acuity. You're, it demands a longer looking Hmm. Um, of the viewer in a sense um, to Mm -hmm. find things there's like this discovery that happens when you start to see when you see the first edge right and you you find a figure um, then then the rest sort of start to kind of appear Um, they reveal themselves to you there's also that moment where um, you kind of realize that there's two different planes colliding um, mm-hmm. There's that horizontal and the vertical planes kind of coming together, but almost seamlessly because you kind of have taken the edge out. Right. Um, um, that in that moment, you're you're able to take out all of these kind of um, cultural cues, all mm-hmm. the symbolic stuff by emptying out the image in a sense and reducing it to pattern on pattern or field color, you know, figure on field of color or something, you know, in different ways, um, and speak to actually the mechanics of, of an image, um, and the way that visuality works, um, maybe not visual, but Mm -hmm. the way image making works and image viewing works, Mm -hmm. um, both 
um, and so I don't know if that's something. I started to do these works a couple years ago where instead of, I just removed the figure altogether, Mm -hmm. but I was still thinking about questions of portraiture and this idea of arrival, like settling upon a figure in this photograph. Um, So I went, for me, I went through the figure, removed it, and went directly to the portrait backdrop. Hmm. And at first I was asking, well, what is the most bare minimal way I can represent uh, space Hmm. or depth rather and so I said okay vertical and horizontal what does that look like Um, and then I became really uh, into the alone space of just me and this portrait backdrop (laughs) and they became uh, almost like some of them became dances some of the, them became a series of meditations and I wanted to create um, I really wanted to create a series mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but without figures and a, a body of photographs that, that had to go together um, and so I would go into the studio and I started to draw vertical and horizontal lines on this vertical and horizontal space. <laughs> <laughs> and it became a series of grids, of course. Um, some of them, I didn't do grids. I would draw a continuous curvy line. And the next day, draw another continuous curvy line. And then maybe after a week, I would take the photograph. Mm. Um There was another photograph where I became really into the act of tracing. So I I drew one grid, let's say, in in black. Mm -hmm. And then I traced the grid in red. And it it was such an intimate experience, this this act of tracing. (laughs) Yeah. And it really felt like I was traversing photographic space itself. Um, so for me personally, as an artist, it was a very intimate process. Um, but in terms of, I know none of that is there when the photographs are shown. Well, it's implied. Maybe, maybe not. Hmm. (laughs) But I I do want to, in terms of, uh, edges, right. Or maybe that, that, that transition from vertical to horizontal, I want that all to be clear, to the viewer that that's that's what's going on um but because of the line and the drawing um there might be a questioning of or a second guessing of is that really what i'm seeing Mm -hmm. and the same sort of thing is going on at uh, the silhouette project or the project Mm. that involves silhouettes that you did at los angeles contemporary Mm. exhibitions lace as we know it right yes that i'm glad you brought that up Uh, because I had been tracing the shadows of friends for a little bit, but during the lace project, I was tracing a lot of shadows. (laughs) (laughs) So people just walk into the gallery, friends visiting the gallery. And that's when I was like, oh my God, this, this act of tracing is so intimate. Like, I don't even know this person standing next to me, but I'm, I'm tracing their shadow, but it feels like I'm touching them. 
And it feels like I'm having this really intimate conversation with someone, even though we're barely speaking. And I went back to uh, a, an account of tracing by, some say Pliny, some say Pliny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say Pliny the Elder. Yeah. <laughs> and he was talking about this um, potter's daughter hmm. in the area that we now know as Greece and how her lover was about to go away. He doesn't say why. Um, and so, but before he left, she projects his shadow on the wall and traces it. And then her father, the potter, comes in and makes a clay relief of his image on the wall. And so there's this historical account. And of course, this this account was gathered through so yeah. many sources and stories, and some from the area known as Egypt and some from the area that we know as Greece. And I found it really fascinating that a Pliny was describing the origins of drawing painting and also photography (laughs) even though he didn't know of the camera or photography as we know it today and b I would I was interested in the drive the drive to make this tracing and the drive was to to hang on to something 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 very intimate to to hold on to preserve something. To preserve. And to make it physical, because one can preserve a memory. So why does it have to take a physical form? Right. That is the question. And what makes it a truer representation of that individual, like more so than a, you know, one of his shield handles or whatever that guy would have, you know, like the actual yeah. trace of his, of his physicality, like that's it seems like that was an attempt to make a, a truer representation or a more intimate representation, right? Right. Or a recognizable one. A recognizable. I think that is the the link. Yeah. It's to make a representation of someone that is recognizable. Um, and that uh, that rendering includes, and this is something I also found fascinating when I was, and from the Lace Project, is that... Um, if, if I drew too quickly, or if I traced too quickly, I would lose the contour between head and shoulders. And so it's, it's mm. that transition. Oh, Whoa, that's really a vertical subtle. to horizontal transition too. Yeah. But it's that transition that triggers recognition in our brains that this is another human figure standing in front of us. And so without that transition from head to shoulders, it becomes formlessness. It becomes like a blob. <laughs> right. As you were talking, I was thinking of something that might be somewhat unrelated, but remarkable to me. So I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, I was thinking about how you were talking about how there is, I don't, did you say that it was maybe somewhat uncomfortable to trace the shadow of someone um, that you'd never, that you had just maybe barely met and you haven't really spoken with them um, and that that there is an intimacy involved in that. And it occurred to me that I was like, does, do we have some sort of ownership of our shadow? Like, is that a thing that's ours? Um, Is it a part of the body? I mean, it's an extension of something of light hitting the body and Mm -hmm. right, which is, it's an image like, like a photograph. Um, it's, it's the product of light, 
landing right. on a plane, right, passing through or right the body and landing on a plane. Um, so it is, I guess, in a sense, an unfixed photo. Photo. Um, so it's an image, um, and we've talked about a little bit between us the ethics of representation. Right. Um, of taking an image that exists in the world, for example, the ethics of representing a face, for example, right. um, and these things. And the, you know, where is the line between the face and the shadow um, that mm. you're, you're mm-hmm. it had never occurred to me that there would be an intimacy with a shadow. Mm. Um, right, because there's an erasure of the face. There's still the outline or contour of the individual, but the... Uh, the, the face is removed, which makes it anonymous to everyone. Mm-hmm. Except for maybe the person whose shadow was traced. They recognize, they, I think they would recognize their own outline. God, I wonder if that, if I would recognize my shadow if I met it at a right. party. You know? Right. <laughs> or if someone traced your shadow without you knowing and then two years later they showed it to you. And would I be appalled that I had been represented without my permission? That's freaky. <laughs> I had no idea. It had never occurred to me to think about shadows um, in that way. Um, well, you were also, when you were tracing those shadows, to get a nice crisp line, you had to have them pretty close to the surface, right? And yes. so you were mm. kind of the video. Well, actually, I was there. You had to kind of like reach around, like you were up in their space. I was. Right. That's true. And that, that, physical proximity or intimacy we could say does does sort of translate into into something that you would or does it i don't know it's not the shadow projected on the ground from a standing figure that's a different oh that is different yeah oh that's way different yeah than the shadow being very close to the figure projected right behind you that's like parallel to your body right rather than perpendicular to it right there was a very there was a Flickering, perhaps, between am I tracing the person's shadow or am I just tracing the person's body? Yeah, that makes that that does make a big difference, actually. Does it? <laughs> well, there's a spectrum of there's yeah. a spectrum between a photo, a photograph, right, taking a picture with a camera, a contemporary camera of someone's face, and then like putting it on the wall. There's there's a lot of steps between that and tracing someone's shadow, right? So somewhere. Somewhere in there, it gets weird for you to <laughs> yeah. to take to. I'm using the term "take that" from them, mm, so that's yeah, yeah. that's telling. But yeah, mm. to 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 represent someone and to share that representation, and so I think that what we're kind of talking about here is that it's very confusing where where that where that line is if it's if it's in fact a line, mm-hmm. um, you know. But it's it's a shifting, flexible moment, let's say between something that we feel okay with and something we don't feel okay with, right? Right. And where does that, I mean, where does this kind of thing place the viewer? I mean, we're talking about like tracing someone's shadow. Like I feel like you're in the in the lace piece and like the room that you have constructed there. I've, oftentimes those, those kind of cardboard rooms or right. wood and cardboard rooms, they are implying like not just where the camera is, but also where is the viewer in that? It's like it, it's creating a space, right, for the viewer in a way. Right. It, 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 it completely relies on the position of the camera. 
um, I'm very uh, conscious that the uh, the four by five large format camera is, or the lens is uh, parallel with the heads. Hmm. And so the, the viewer is confronted with this, um, this space that maybe hovers between something familiar and something that has been completely erased. Um, and I, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, there, there, I guess so there's something in that juxtaposition between something familiar and then something erased. Or something that um, we know, like, uh, whether it's a cutout or the body in the photograph without a face, that um, makes makes the experience very familiar. Like I know this room, I know this is a body. It's recognition again, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But then there's a certain uh, it, there's 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 an intimacy, but there's also a, a violence in in that erasure. Um, there's there's a violence in just showing an outline, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I feel like that's what photography does. You're listening to the People in Kei Chung, sixteen thirty a.m. I'm Ben White, and I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the People Radio. When you go there, uh, please rate and review the show. Yes, please do. And you can also find us at insertblancpress.net. Uh, by clicking on the people at the top of the page. And now back to our conversation with Gina Osterloh and Samira Yamin. Well, I, I wanted to just lay some cards on the table. Okay. Um, well, one, I, I thought of you to join me in, in this conversation because I just want to hang out with you. Yeah, <laughs> we've discussed this is all a ploy, by the yeah. way. <laughs> but, I mean, but just, okay, when it comes to your work your photographs, um, I'm just, I, they're, I'm fascinated by them. Like I, they just, they arrest me. I want to look at them for a long time. And we can't always articulate what that is, right? Um, I know we've talked a lot about uh, these modes of perception and vision, both physical, neurological, and also when we look at a photograph, vision that's highly informed by uh, the social language, the social constructs that we're born into, mm. they're inescapable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep thinking about uh, your own experience with scotomas. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could speak one um, about those experiences, but also more speak more about the process of making the body of work that created scotoma the actual making right because we we haven't talked about making things making (laughs) yeah and the labor that goes into your work yeah it's really important and can you start with just telling people who don't know what that is what a scotoma is yeah scotoma um means darkness or um, blind spot so um, it can take many forms. Uh, it's for what I personally experience is called a scintillating scotoma, um, and it's also known as a migraine aura. Um, and people experience them in different ways. Some people have physical sensations in their bodies. Um, I don't think that's just that's a type of aura. Um, some people have um, like they smell. I'm not sure exactly how it functions, mm-hmm. if they smell certain things or smells are distorted. Um, but it's it's a very sensory 
like a physical sensory uh, distortion. Um, a scotoma is is specifically the visual distortion um, type of or aura. And so um, it's called scintillating because it moves mm-hmm. um, and it has this like flickering kind of um, quality to it. Um, and it has something to do with light. I don't know um, how how it is that it happens, but what uh, what I find interesting about it uh, specifically is that all of these distortions occur in the brain. And so um, what I I should say what I experience is um, I there's a spot of light will appear um, in my visual field, and it'll just expand over the course of about 45 minutes, um, and then it'll just go away, and then that's when the migraine hits. Um, so there's this pressure inside of the brain, and it puts pressure on the optical nerve, and it creates this particular image um, mm-hmm. in in the brain. So, yeah, what I find interesting about it is that the eye is totally unaffected. The, the eye is exactly what it is or was, you know. Right. Um, and so it's an interesting metaphor for me for images and for photography specifically because the eye, the camera is a type of an eye. It's based on the um, physiology and the function of the way light passes through the eye and creates an image inside the brain, you know, all this kind of um, – or it creates an image in the, in the back of the – the eye, right. um, which then the brain interprets and flips, right and flips side over. Um, <laughs> yeah, and but the interpretation of the recognition of the objects of the figure and ground and all that kind of stuff—that's um, all occurring in the brain. Right. Um, and so, to me, the scotoma is an interesting thing to think about distortion um, on the level of perception. Right. So, um, light is passing through the eye exactly as it always does, but for 45 minutes, there's this way that my brain is receiving it. That's um, it's not untrue. Right. Right. It's exactly. It is not untrue. Yeah. It, it's exactly what it is. Um, it's it's the result of the conditions under which the image is being interpreted. And so um, that degree of objectivity um, remains, which is what I think is so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So the, in, like in the camera, the camera gets to maintain its objectivity. It's not the object itself. That changes. Yeah, that changes. It's the way the image is made. Um, and the conditions under which it's made. So the direction that it's facing, for example, um, right. if, if we're to take the metaphor back to the camera, um, or the person behind it is the very literal thing. So my mm. person, my brain um, behind the eye is is receiving and perceiving light in this very particular way. I used it as a way to talk about nostalgia in in that particular body of work and the experience of looking at photographs of my grandparents, um, which um, was was a fascinating experience to me because I lost my grandfather. So we're talking about my paternal Mm -hmm. grandparents now. Um, I lost my grandfather at age 13, Mm -hmm. um, and I was born and raised in the U.S. Um, They live in Iran. And so I had only met him a few times. And so my experience of him was very limited. And at that age, it, it was I was just too young and way too self-involved. Um, right. So mm-hmm. um, with my grandfather, as I get older, when I look at photographs, I feel like I'm learning things from mm-hmm. them. Like I, hmm. from that photograph, I, you know, from 
that photograph and many other photographs, I've learned of the spots on his face. You know, like those were things that I don't have memories of. That right. that's information I've gleaned from looking back at images. So they've played a really important role in my relationship to my grandfather. My grandmother passed away when I was uh, almost 30. And when I look at images of her, especially at that moment when I found that these images, these negatives that belonged you know, to my grandfather, um, <laughs> she was um, really ill. She was in, in a coma in the hospital and she, she was dying. And um, I was at her house alone um, in Iran and um, going through images and I sort of saw this image and I knew I was losing my grandmother. Right. And the image felt so deceptive it like to look at an image of her just could never be her like it just was so flat and so empty like it just reminded me of loss right which was so different than the experience of looking at an image of my grandfather that was like always giving to you know and here I found this image of them in the same frame mm-hmm. it was the image of my grandparents you know in their youth um at the beach and my grandfather is like approaching me and my grandmother is receding. And it was just this really fascinating experience where I had this very complex experience all collapsed into one frame. Um, And it had everything to do with perception. Right. And this image had it can do so much for me and yet take so much from me in a sense. Or or it points to loss in a way um, that just I it hadn't really occurred to me. Right. Um, and on that very personal level, it hadn't occurred to me. I'd been working with war photography for 12 years by then. Um, right. And so I had worked through so many thought experiments of what it means to receive an image in a newspaper that had been taken thousands of miles away and been through all these editing processes. And I'd done the whole geometry series, most of it, you know, by that point. But um, over the course of 10 years, you made the geometry series. Yeah, that was over. That was, I started collecting images right after 9-11. Right. Um, and um, I didn't really know why. I just knew that it was the first time I was really seeing um, images as, a, as an adult um, of people that looked like me in the newspaper, um, right. except that um, they were always either dead or dying. Right. Um, and that was not my experience of, you know, that part of the world. Um, and so I developed a mistrust, a distrust of of images, like really quickly at a very formative moment in my life um, at 18, you know, it was right. like kind of the first time it was really occurring to me to, to think about images on this other mm-hmm. kind of level um, and the reception of images. Um, and then all the way back to, it began with my receiving of images and then I had to go back and do all the thought experiments and go back to like the making of the image um, right. and putting it in, in a line of historical, you know, image making and image production and then meaning making um, and how images, you know, make meaning, and then they're also made from meaning. You know, right. we take take meanings and significances and then represent them as well. So they kind of work both ways. Um, so there were a lot of things that I had kind of thought about photography. Right. Um, and then here... With there the Skatoma was, Project. 
it, it which was a show it was um scotoma was a show, was a show at the craft and folk art museum right here in los angeles it was myself and uh gulnar adili um who's in new york um mm-hmm. And she was born in Iran and immigrated to the U.S. And she had also, she had lost her father and lived apart from him um, on and off um, for a large part of her life. And so we were both thinking about nostalgia. And she also makes use of photography um, through making copies and reusing them and printing them into things um, and images of, you know, letters that her father wrote and things like that. and so, and, and that image of your grandparents that you kind of manipulated in mm-hmm. for for the for the film and that show, can you talk about like the what you were physically doing as well and how it relates to, you know, metaphorically what you were representing? Yeah, it's um, it's made using. Um, I found a negative, um, a little square negative of my grandparents at the uh, you know seaside, and um, I printed it and then I what I did with it was I I tried to recreate my personal experience of a scotoma so um which lasts close to 40 minutes I kind of um it's it's been described as ineffable which I think is the perfect word Mm -hmm. to describe it is to say that it is indescribable um so based on my own personal experience I know how inaccurately I've represented it um but I tried to um basically create um some sort of the experience of it outside of my my personal brain. Um, so um, what I did was I would uh, cut a single triangle, an equilateral triangle in it, turn it once to the right and paste it back in place and then scan the image and then take it, you know, off, cut another triangle, equilateral triangle, turn it once to the right, scan the image. And so um, the final product is in essence, an animation of over 700 images um, that scans of this photograph as I'm manipulating it. And then so there's a resultant video that's a, close to 40 minutes long and the final distorted, manipulated photograph. The difference between that project right. and the geometries project, mm-hmm. because they both involve cutting, they right. both involve geometry um, and the systematic operation, um, the difference is that with the geometries, I'm removing something, right? Right. So there's, um, there are holes, there's holes, there's spaces, um, either it flattens the image, um, but there's, it's a process of removal. Right. Um, and that what remains is, you know, the final, um, product is the, the kind of whatever sticks together in the process. The scotoma work the everything is there Hmm. it's just not in the right place Hmm. and that's the difference and that it has to come together in the mind of the viewer um Hmm. in a different way right because you're you're cutting out triangles and then you're turning them so all of the photographic information is still there Mm -hmm. but it's shifted exactly it's displaced in a sense it's um so yeah, it's all there to be read. It's the same thing. Um, it's the same. It, that's why I thought it was such an interesting metaphor for nostalgia. It's right. the same thing. It just feels different. It's sort of in a different place. It's differently right. constructed. It's differently configured. Um, it's just kind of um, 
distorted by time, by 40 minutes worth of time. Um, and uh, the way that the actual you know, the final video works worked in that particular installation was that you walk into the room and there's this projected image that looks like a projected photograph and it's changing so slowly that you could easily miss it. But right. by the time you've made your way around the room and you come back to it and that you would have to see it again before you leave the room because of the way that it was installed, it was with that time you would recognize the change. And so hmm. for me, that was the that was the crux of the operation is that hmm. it required time to recognize the way that it works. Right. Time and also absence. Like the, the viewer had to leave. Exactly. That's and, true. And return. Exactly. In the same way that, you know, someone that lives in a diaspora like myself mm-hmm. would experience their grandparents is through distance. Um, and, and a loop. You return, that's you leave. True. And yeah, they return and they leave. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. because of that space, I recognize the time in a way that I don't see myself aging right. um, in the mirror on a daily basis. Well, Gina and Samira, thanks for joining <laughs> us on The People. Thanks for thanks having for being us. Thanks for on the show, guys. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, this is great. You've been listening to The People on Kechung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember that you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio uh, in the podcast section. And when you're there, please do take the time to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. uh, And leave us a rating and leave us a review. It really helps us out. That would be great. And you can also find us at insertblancpress.net. And you can go there and click on The People at the top of the page and find our archives and other elements about the show and you can also find us on stitcher and soundcloud or uh, wherever else you get your podcasts and we are of course on facebook so go to facebook yeah like us like, on, us like us like us on facebook, like us on facebook. Yeah. and our theme music as always is Fifth by lewis keller and we are going to go out this episode with a song by los angeles artist and friend of the show geneva skeen from her forthcoming album dark speech Available September 23rd, 2016, from Dragon's Eye Recordings. You can find it online at dragonseyerecordings.com. And the name of the track is Ambivalence. Nice.